0: What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's happening? Blues people. As you know, we celebrate and raise awareness of African American traditional music in the black experience. And one of the most important ways of doing that is through folklorism, ethnography and ethnomusicology. Many people do this and aren't even aware that these terms exist. And I guess we call them community activists or community folklorists. But I'm honored to be speaking with February's African-American Folklorist of the Month, Miss Wanda Addison. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm fairly well. I'm doing good. I'm actually very groovy and excited because one of... Before we get into your story, I I would like to set this up like this, and this is something I've been speaking to other uh, black folk, brown folk in the folklore, ethnography, ethnomusicology industry in regards of the academic industry, that there are a plethora of black folk, for lack of a better term, that. Does this kind of work engage in this kind of work? But one don't know, or possibly don't care to know the terminologies, and two are not even aware this is actually a uh, viable uh, a career path. And they, you know, and they do it in their own independent way. What's your thoughts about that and connecting the two?
1: I, I I think you're right when you talk about people not knowing that folklore is a thing or that what they do uh, every day is connected to folklore. Uh, before I started uh, folklore, so to speak, before I became a folklorist, I didn't know what folklore was. I I had no idea. I didn't know that Um, There was such a thing as food ways, which is the study of the food that a culture makes and the value of that food to that culture, the meaning of it, the making of it. I didn't know that stories that I grew up hearing about my grandmother uh, were part of um, what is termed folklore. I had no idea. And so for me, it wasn't a lack of. Wanting to know, it was simply not having that vocabulary and or not having that knowledge base. And so I think you're absolutely spot on when you say that so many people are doing folklore work and they don't know that what they're doing is is folklore.
0: So with that being said, let's get into your story and in your story, we can circle back to that uh, topic in regards to how do we bridge that gap? So you said when you first got into it, you yourself weren't aware. So how did you stumble upon this, this concept of folklore?
1: I went, I, I, decided to, um, I decided to pursue higher education. So I was ending my master's program. I was getting ready to get my master's in English. And it felt like it wasn't done. If you know that feeling, like there's more there. Right. And it, I just decided, um, I, will, I will say that I, I believe that God put it in my spirit that there was more to do, that there was more for me to do. And so I applied for uh, the PhD program at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette in Lafayette, Louisiana, Mm. and I was accepted into the program. I received a fellowship because of the smidgen percentile above what I needed to be when I took the graduate exam. And I am thankful for that. Otherwise, I would not have been able to go. (laughs) And but when I went when I started there, I had full intentions of getting a Ph.D. in literature only mm. in English, only literature, still didn't know what folklore was. And my first, two of my first three classes were folklore classes. They ended up being folklore classes. One was a folklore and literature class mm. and one was uh, a seminar in folklore. Mm. And in the seminar and folklore class, we, there was one assignment where we had to choose an, a journal and the professor gave a list of journals uh, from, for us to choose from. And I kind of hemmed and hawed and I ended up, there ended up only being like three journals or something left. And I chose the one uh, titled oral, oral literature. And that was the name of the journal. And so we, we had to research it and then do a presentation. So I went to the library Uh, looked at a bunch of the journals and there was this article about uh, Indian women and the stories that they told. And when I tell you that a light bulb went off for me in that moment, I I just, I, I I can't be more precise than that. (laughs) It was an aha moment that I was like, I didn't know people were doing this. I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know hearing women's stories and valuing them and uplifting them. I didn't know sitting around the table and sharing your life through your personal experience stories was a thing. And from that moment on that moment in the library, Mm. I became a folklorist. I, Mm. even though I didn't, yet claim the title, I was a folklorist. There was simply no turning back. And honestly, there was nothing else I wanted to study. There was nothing else I wanted to know. I had found my home in folklore.
0: So is it fair to say, considering your story, and I identify with your story 100%, this is a calling. It has to be a calling because it's not like the most lucrative business unless you're a professor, correct?
1: And, and, and you know, there could be, <laughs> there could, there could be question marks about it being lucrative as a professor, let me tell you, <laughs> but, um, there is financially, rewarding in that sense are you you know chances are you're, you're not going to make millions and millions of dollars as a folklorist yes <laughs> that, <you're>, that's <laughs> probably not gonna happen
0: but it is a calling though this is something that is yes. it's, it's, it's like a calling a, a mission that you were given
1: it in 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 some cases yes I, I i do believe that's the case that there is something bigger than you the person that is reaching out to you. And, and I, I don't want to make it sound very touchy-feely or anything like that. Right. It's, 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 this, it's the same or very similar with other professions. Um, um, a doctor who is a cardiologist knows that they're good at that and they know that that's exactly the work that they should be doing. Right. It, it's a very similar thing when you know that the work that you're called to do is about shining a light on other people's work. Mm. And that's part of what folklorists do. They shine a light on other people's traditions and they value those traditions. People want to be heard and seen. And part of what folklorists do is they come and they say, I hear you. I see you, I value you, and I respect what you do.
0: Now, that's a very, very important, and I hate to say it, it's a touchy statement. And when I say touchy, I don't mean touchy as risque. I mean touchy as um, um, emotion pulling, you know, because in, in the big picture, and I make, you know, I make joke, but in the big, honest picture, there's a multitude of people who do not feel heard.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And they do not feel seen. Um, one of the things that I noticed a gap. When I was um, in Louisiana and and because I was not born and raised in Louisiana, I was very much an outsider to that to that South Louisiana Cajun and Creole culture. And so as an outsider, what I noticed that there seemed to be a gap in or the voices of African-American or black Creole women over 50. Mm. And it, it was very clear to me that those voices were going to be lost. If, if they weren't recorded in greater numbers. So that was something early on that was a big, a big deal for me. And that has since grown for me. Um, actually, I think the, the seed was probably planted earlier, uh, even prior to my going uh, to Louisiana uh, around issues uh, dealing with um, elders and specifically women. Elders, and so that seed was watered in when I was in Louisiana, and from there it it has simply continued to grow. And my focus continues to be women's voices, women's stories, particularly women over fifty, right. um, because those experiences are are different in some ways, in many ways, than women who are under thirty or even under forty, and there there's value and significant value in who these women are, who they have been, who they will be. There's value in the stories that they tell, there's value in their experiences. And I don't want us as a culture to lose those voices. That that's just something that is my passion. That is hands down my number one passion. And for me that's also connected Around issues of home and belonging, mm. so those are those are just very important things for me. No,
0: they they are. You know, I, I have a question, but before I get to the question, I just want to add to your statement the, the, how powerful it is because being uh, a bluesman and, and having uh, many uh, blues cats. And kittens <laughs> in my age age range. Uh, one of my fellow blues brothers brought to my attention who's in my age group. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, there are two uh, groups of, of of blues musicians who people notice, relish, and 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 really make a big fuss over, and that's the 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 thirty and under. 25 and under, and that's the 65 and over. But there's just a group of people nobody seems to care about. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as you tell, as you express your story, I think about even the slave narratives when they were, um, uh, the WPA slave narratives when they was uh, interviewing the children of of slaves, the first quote-unquote free, they were interviewing 80, 70, 90 year old people, mm. you know, so it's, it's, it's like, you know, you're either interviewing or telling the story of the kids or you're telling the story of, of the, the elders that are about to ascend. That that That's a very unique and very important group of people that you represent. Now here here's my question, specifically based on you saying, I noticed women, at this age, we're not being documented, recorded. These stories weren't being heard. How did you notice that? What brought this to your attention?
1: I I think mainly it was just observation, honestly. Um, again, as an outsider, you know when when you're out, when you're not within your culture. Even though I'm Southern, I I was born and raised in Memphis. Um, the Southwest Louisiana culture is different from the Mid-South culture that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, those the Cajun and Creole experience is different from the African-American experience, um, that I had in the Mid-South. They have their own experience as, um, Creoles of color as well as African-American, um, women. uh, And, and obviously the Cajun uh, experience is very unique to that area um, as well. So I'm, I'm bringing to Southwest Louisiana, specifically Lafayette, I'm bringing to that area and the surrounding towns, my previous experiences of what I'm used to seeing. Um, I'm used to seeing uh, african American women out front i 'm used to seeing african american women 's voices in some way seen mm. and heard and that seemed to be missing in in significant ways for me when mm. i when I was there and then what we were studying at the university i 'm like I would really like I wonder what these women over 50, I wonder what their life experiences were like, because we were reading about lots of people's experiences. We were reading about lots of things um, in folklore. Uh, We were certainly reading about uh, literature, my folklore and lit class, and then uh, my other literature classes as well. And I just began to wonder. And then uh, Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, who will forever have my heart. I love her just like I love James Baldwin. They are two of my favorite writers. Mm. And so I'm reading her work, most of which I was not that familiar with. And I'm reading everything that she did as this African-American woman in the early 20th century, who was a folklorist, who was an ethnographer, who was an anthropologist, who went out and said, Black people are fabulous. Let me tell you who we are. And I'm reading her Mules and Men and I'm reading their, their Eyes Were Watching God and I'm reading her some of her other short stories. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And that just it just sort of evolved. Like I, there's, there, there's not a linear trajectory. It's, it's really all of the pieces just sort of fell into place mm. because that's where I, that's where I was supposed to be. And so things just sort of fell in the right place for me. Um, it doesn't mean the trajectory was always smooth because it wasn't, right. but I knew that what I was seeing was not an accident. And I wanted to hear from these women who were not the women that I had grown up knowing. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to hear from them. I wanted to hear who they were. I wanted to hear their experiences. Um, and so I did a few interviews and, and my dissertation uh, is based on that, but I, I did interviews for, for classes as well. And it was just, it was one of the richest experiences uh, Outside of, uh, outside of Memphis, that that I'd ever had. It was just fabulous being there.
0: So, with that beginning, have you? And I believe you mentioned this, but I, I still want to ask to get the juice. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> with that beginning, has has your uh, tenure became going around to different? cultures whether it's different black cultures or different ethnic cultures documenting recording and and helping tell the story of women in this age group
1: that is my vision Mm. you you speak my vision and my desire into the universe Mm. that i would be thrilled to be able to do that (laughs) that is really something that i i want to do and i want to do it in this country. Um, because, um, the American experience of, of black people is different in some ways for very specific reasons than other countries. And so I, I desire greatly to do that. And so perhaps one day I would, I will be able to travel around the country, uh, setting up interviews, um, similar to what Randall Keenan was able to do. in, um, I think the name of his book is walking on water or something like that. It's, it's several years old, but it's mm-hmm. so good. And that's the kind of thing that uh, I want to do now within my own little world here in San Diego, where I teach at a local university and um, don't, because I'm not in a folklore program, there aren't very many folklore programs, and so I'm in an English department. Because my degree is in English, um, I have I have been able to connect with a local um, Black storytelling group. It's called the Black Storytellers of San Diego, mm. and so I've been able to have somewhat of a a partnership, so to speak. With them over the last probably eight to ten years, and I've I've certainly been able to interview um, some of them uh, and just support the work that they do in this community um, with storytelling and and uplifting uh, Black culture.
0: Now, if they have a a website or any type of of, of media, uh, along with your uh, Twitter handle and everything, we can definitely uh, link that to this uh, interview if you would like.
1: Sure, I can. I would. I can absolutely send you their. Um, they have a website and I, I they have a Facebook page too, but I'm not on Facebook, so I would have to get that from them right. but um i i they, they do have a Facebook page, and they do have a website so i I'll reach out to the um the president or the vice president and and let them know that you would like to um, post their their contact info um, and I'm sure they don't have, they won't have any issue with that at all. I'm sure they would welcome it. And I will, I can certainly give you my Twitter handle, which I, I post a lot of non-folklore related stuff, just so you know.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do not live in, you know, folklore if, because everything is, I mean, it's, it sounds so nonsensical, perhaps is the right word, to say that everything is, is folklore because it feels like you're watering it down. But mm-hmm. the reality is that there are so many things that we experience every day, the stories we tell around those things. Other professions are actually doing folklore-like work and don't realize it. So the work that work that sociologists do, uh, some of that work is folklore type of work, the ethnography work that they do. Ooh. Um, uh, there are other, there are other professions, uh, anthropologists, of course, uh, they do and, uh, they, they do their own sort of work and they are ethnographers as well. So they're not, some may be folklorists, but not all identify as that, but fields that are completely outside of that, of the realm of anthropology of folklore. There are several of them are, that are doing folklore type work. Uh,
0: sociology comes to mind,
1: uh, right off.
0: But, you know, let let me ask you this. I'm happy you brought that up because this is a great segue because this is something that um, I've I've asked um, others in in this uh, academic space um, and, and some that dance between the two, the academic and community, based on what their focus is. If... In fact, and I, I set it up like this, not because it's not true, but, you know, um, I watched a lot of Perry Mason growing up. So.
1: <laughs> I, too, love Perry Mason. <laughs> okay, <good.
0: laughs> if in fact, a lot of these um, spaces, you know, sociology, history, for that matter, literature, uh, archaeology, all these things embody folklore to some degree, why do a i guess a percentage i don't want to make a i'm trying not to make a blanket statement, but why do a percentage of them not rely on the folklore in their study or document as if it's not a scientific fact? Do you understand my question um i'm I'm, I'm not sure so um you Why do they think folklore is not a a, a historical fact in some cases? So when you, you you know, they're like, oh, well, this is folklore. But instead of going to the people to get the history, let's go to this textbook. Because this textbook is going to tell us what really happened. But if we go to the folklore of the people, that might be contrived, made up or exaggerated. So we cannot rely on that as uh, scientific evidence (laughs) for this dissertation or paper. You understand my question? (laughs)
1: Right. And so I, I'm, I'm going to answer it, but if I'm not hitting your point, let me know. Okay. Um, I, I think for some, they don't even think about folklore. People don't think about folklore as a discipline. Mm. And so they, they don't recognize the value of, people's experiences that have not always, that have not yet been captured in a succinct form. So if I can go to a book and say, I understand the people now, those people, whomever they might be, I, okay, I get them now because this book has told me who they are. Mm. Then, I I, I think I understand, but if I have to go, or if I decide to go to that particular group of people in their space, then I don't know yet what I've missed, because I'm presuming that the book has told me everything. When I go to their space, perhaps I might find it messy. Mm. Perhaps I might find it difficult. Perhaps I might find it challenging to navigate, to negotiate. It's because, especially if you're thinking about it in the concept of science, it's Mm. not cut and dried because human beings are not cut and dried. And so if I'm valuing a published text as a scientific or at the very least vetted document
0: vetted yes
1: implying truth then the anecdotal pieces of individual lives are not always valued mm-hmm. and that's across the board yeah because it's very easy and i've certainly heard people say many many times that something is anecdotal This thing is anecdotal. And when they say that, that discounts, whether they intend to or not, they are discounting that person's experience or that group's experience. Mm. And when you do that, there is a move of erasure that happens at that point. (laughs) But what I think some people fail to understand and perhaps some disciplines as well. I, I can't, I, I don't want to overreach here, okay. but what is, what is sometimes failed to, under, to be understood is there is truth in the anecdotal. It doesn't mean that you stop at two people's stories, but if you have a community and a hundred people are telling you very similar things, have very similar experiences, then it ceases to be anecdotal at that point. Mm. If you have 20 people, it's probably no longer anecdotal. And that invites further study, further research, further ethnography. But if you've captured 2 million people's lives in a 500 page book and and you think that that is Truth And so, you know, everything that's that's where the highly problematic start to happen, regardless of where that culture is, it, it would be the same where if it's in another country or if it's in a federal prison or if it's in a state prison. That is a culture. State prisons have their own culture. Federal prisons have their own culture. Police departments have their culture. Every institution has its own culture. And from that institution, there will be stories told. And so there is a folklore of that institution.
0: So let let me ask you, is it arrogant then for the, the thought to be, let me go... You know, interview all these people and then try to, for lack of a better word, but also being somewhat sarcastic, civilize them because you made it clear if it's 120 or more people, this is not really an issue. This is a lifestyle. Right. So, when in studying these, in studying different groups of people, would it then be a, 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 a tad bit arrogant for for those studying the people to uh gather the information and then, well, let me see how I can change them?
1: If their if their goal is to change, that's that's problematic from from the start. If their if their goal is to learn, then that's a, that's a different set uh, uh, of motivations there. So one thing I think folklorists learn, they've come to learn, um, we continue to learn, I believe, is how humbling what we do is. Mm-hmm. We don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not the experts. We cannot, I cannot walk into, as a folklorist, I, when I first met and, and I'll use the black storytellers of San Diego as an example, again, when I first met them um, and I met the, the then founding uh, the founder and president um, who has since passed on. But when I, when I first met her, it would have been incredibly arrogant of me to think that I could tell her about storytelling. Mm. I was not there to tell her about storytelling. I was there to hear what she had to say. And if, if I were interviewing, if I was out and, and interviewing a group of um, people or just one person, and I wanted to hear their story, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not there to do anything but hear them. I'm there to listen. I'm there to capture. I'm there to, to get, soak it up, get whatever I can. I'm, I'm a, I'm a sponge at that point because I want to learn and I want to know if my goal, however, to go back to your, your initial point, if my goal is to somehow make them accessible to other people, I would, I would have to question that thought process for myself. Word. If my goal is to civilize them, again, I would have to question the, the, the thought process, the action of anyone who was attempting to do that or thought that that was possible. Um, do, do books help bring understanding about cultures that we don't, we don't know or people that we don't know? They can, absolutely there's significant value in books for, in part, for that reason. Um, Is it, is it a point of civilization? I I don't think so. That, that's, that's not how I would view it. But uh, again, it's not to say that there aren't books whose motivation was that thing. (laughs) Because I'm sure that there probably are, or there certainly have been in the past, if not currently.
0: Well, let's, let's, I try to keep it in the present and the future, because sure. but but I want to go to the past for uh, a minute. And just on a side note, one of the reasons why I try to keep it to the present because we I, I, I think it, a lot of people currently become overlooked because of our reverence and and respect for what happened yesterday. But mm. that's that's not the end of them. Old school, turn of the century, from turn of the century to the 60s. And this is more, I don't even want to say more prevalent in, in Black music, because when you go to uh, Black uh, communities, areas, any type of art or whatever, and you kind of see this, do, do you believe one of the issues, I guess that a lot of people, in the, a lot of Black people in the last 30 or 40 years, 50 years have with the earlier folklorism of our counterparts or, or white folklorists or non-black is that in some cases it appears as if they're going to these communities to interview but telling them what their story is and do you see some of that reflect today because I do
1: um, I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by by what you're seeing today do you mind talking a little bit about that
0: i do not mind at all um i i it's predominantly in blues and the blues scene but okay. what happens is in these conversations when uh white blues historians not all So I have to say that, because when I just say white, that's a blanket statement. Mm -hmm. Not all, but a good uh, portion of them um, tell black people and everybody else what our story is and how we're supposed to receive it in regards to an expression that will stem through us, through our experience. And that usually um, scatters into other parts of the Black experience and history that they also wish to tell us the story of. So to be more specific, you know, early in my folklorist career, when I didn't know I was a folklorist and I'm having these debates with people, they, they call themselves debunking me because they read it in a book. By uh, uh, that was written by a non-black person. It was an autobiography of a black person who spoke in a coded language to the white person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they're telling me, I don't know what I'm talking about when I got the story directly from the horse's mouth, which was granddaddy, great granddaddy, uncles and people who lived amongst these people they're reading about. Mm-hmm. That's so mm-hmm. that's pretty. So it's kind of like I found it was and I I make this joke, but it's, well, they say the truth in comedy. Um, It's a group of white people, particularly white men, jockeying to see who's best suited to tell a black person's story. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's Mm -hmm. what I'm asking. And I I do Mm -hmm. see it today. There's many, there are a, a good small group that don't subscribe to that. And then there's another group that, um, are the antithesis of that, but their agenda is not much different than those white men jockeying to tell the Black man's story. So it's just, it's just kind of, or oh, Black woman, please forgive mm-hmm. me, because yeah, yeah. A Black people's story. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've seen this and it's something that's carried on. And to be more specific with the question, do you believe that in this day and age, a lot of the documented work from yesterday they don't want to refute because whether they knew at the time was i don't want to well i say loosely whether they knew if they was wrong at the time i say that loosely because i you know or how about this as they got older their experience and their, their mindset evolved and, they, oh, I could have handled it better or I could have did this, that, or the third. However, they've made a, a tenure and a career and, and a living at this. So if if they retract some of these things, that could be detrimental. So do you think that also plays a part in how things work?
1: I think that, yes, does it? Is is, is there a measure of that happening still? There absolutely is, of course. There, in part because there is no shortage of people trying to tell African Americans about their own experience. Mm. Um, And and in turn, refusing to hear. Correct. What African-Americans are saying about their own experience, um, <laughs> it, which is, I mean, the, the height of arrogance, but it's also a certain amount of fear, uh, a certain amount of um, um, blindness. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, they just don't even see. Sometimes people don't see because one thing that many people fail to see is their implicit bias people don't see their bias. Um, it is. And regardless of the amount of training, you, you also have to be willing to do the work to see that we all have biases regardless of who you are. If you are living and breathing and over a certain age, maybe, I don't know, five, (laughs) you, you have, you have an implicit bias about something. Now, in this case, we're talking specifically around race and gender issues. There is, a, there is a bias around that. And once we can begin to see that that bias exists within us, then we can begin to mitigate it and interrogate it and be aware uh, of it showing up in the work that we do.
0: Mm.
1: that we we need to learn to be quiet and step aside and that that can happen when we're very educated that absolutely can happen where because i've studied and i'll use your example about blues music and, and but to be clear i haven't studied it but let's sure. say that i had so let's say that i was an ethnomusicologist nothing against them. I'm using them as an example. Um, they do as a musicologist do great work, but let's say that I, I had studied blues. That was my specialty. I, I need to recognize that because I've studied a thing and I know it well from that viewpoint, and I may have interviewed many, many people and written multiple books, who knows, but there's a, there's an expertise that I have in that, in that focus. Right. When I am interviewing musicians, when I'm interviewing blues musicians, it can be a conversation, but I am first going to bow to their expertise because they have an expertise that I might not have. Mm. Unless I am a a blues musician of a certain era, of a certain age, of a certain race or gender, I don't know what they know. And even if I am the same race and gender of them and I have this great degree and this great expertise, this knowledge base, I'm still... I haven't lived their experience. And that it's the recognizing how we should remove ourselves from that that space of bias or, or expertise and bow to the knowledge of the person that has agreed to speak with us and be interviewed by us. So is that happening now? Yes. Is it with intention? Sometimes. Is it simply a lack of awareness? Sometimes. When we think about past work of folklorists as well as um, others, we have to recognize that there are two points that that we have to recognize for me. One is that they were working out of the time at which they were working. Right. And so w- things that were done, things that were said, things that were approached, how they dealt with people uh, that they were interviewing, how they saw them, how they referred to them in their writing can be highly offensive to us now with our 21st century
0: sensibilities. Correct. Correct. Well, the, well, today everything's offensive to everyone. Exactly, <laughs> because
1: we are we are all ready to be offended at any moment. <laughs> but the reality is that, yeah, it's it, it can some of it will be highly offensive to, to us in in this in this day and time. Mm. the The challenge the challenge is to recognize, accept, and acknowledge the shortcomings that exist in the work, and then the value that the work may have have brought to bear. Mm. It's, it, they, they're not mutually exclusive sometimes. And quite frankly, in 100 years, in 50 years, when people are combing through some of our works, some of our products, some of the things that we've done and put out into the world in writing, in digital spaces, mm-hmm they might absolutely find our way of talking, our way of thinking to be ridiculous and short-sighted and, and offensive. That is true. And, but does that mean that for, for some of us, the work that we produced, that because those things exist, it's not without value. There is value still there, But because of the time out of which we're producing it in this early 21st century and the 20th century for some of us in in the year 2200, (laughs) people will be going, oh, my God, what is what? Who? Why did why are they referring to people like that? How dare they? We can't know. We can only do the best that we can do being as aware as we can be right now.
0: No, I hear that. To to the point, I I may have to ask you to to use that as a foreword of a project that I'm currently working on about the Lomax legacy, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because you kind of wrapped up everything in that statement. You know, because there was a time period where there was different beliefs, different things going on, and different colloquialisms for different groups of people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Now, now, also in the regards of bias, which I would like to touch on, because what I received, and tell me if I'm wrong, we have to get ourselves out of the way to get the honest. Truth of what and who we're interviewing, right? So, remove the ego and the, that great. I have a point to prove to all of you people. This is what you're saying.
1: Yep, um, significantly so. And and to be sure, there's a there's there's a time where we re-enter that space, and that time is when we are sitting at our desk with the interview, and we are transcribing it. Mm. We are not removed at that point um, because we can't be to a certain right. degree. We, we, we have to be present in many different ways in the transcription as we're analyzing the transcription, um, as, as we're analyzing the interview. And we're, we're considering what is there. We, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be aware of our biases because we absolutely should still be aware of them. Um, but when we are in the midst of the interview, we, and, and in, in the midst of the space uh, with that person or those people, yes, we, we sort of need to be a little bit more invisible. But when we are doing our transcription, when we are doing our writing, every, every, every single thing written has an agenda there's no published thing out there without an agenda. That is true. And so we just, we need to figure out what are we hoping to achieve with this thing that we are writing and who are we hoping to impact? Who are we hoping will see this? What's our goal? And then begin to work to make that come to, to bear or to question it, as the case may be. From there, then we can produce something of value.
0: Okay. Now, with that being said, because I, I for the most part, what I was going to ask you initially was, what would you tell an up-and-coming footloose? But everything you said, I believe, is what you would tell them. So,
1: well, <laughs> so I mean, okay. So, let' just really quickly. Um, sure. I would tell them to find the thing that you love about folklore and put your whole heart and soul to it. Mm, okay. Don't let anyone tell you, no, you can't. Don't let anyone tell you it's not a value. Don't let anyone tell you no one wants to hear about those people over there, that group over there. Don't believe them. If, if the passion is in you to do that thing, go do it. Because it is not always about who else. Sometimes it's just about the people who have agreed to allow you to, to hang out with them and to interview them and to see them.
0: And I mean, that's a lot because that's pretty much welcoming someone into your home. Yes, which should be respected. So now with that being said, what would you tell the group of people that do this work, this documentation, this, this, this study research, et cetera, et cetera, and interviews and everything, but don't know their folklorists don't know. There's an the industry that they can tap into however they want to. And To be specific, they are from the black community in in low to no income areas, but they they find their story or the story of their people, you know, whatever the story is, very intriguing and they're working to to get these stories out. What would you tell them and how would you uh, present uh, to them how they can connect the two worlds?
1: The first thing I would tell them is to keep doing the work that you're doing, that there is value in that work. The next thing would be to join organization, even if it's just signing up on the website to begin with. You know, you might you might not have money to actually join, but the um, American Folklore Society, for example, has a website that you can you can access Uh, information Um, there are going to be certain things you can access because you're if you're not a member but they have resources on the website Um, you can if if there's a a folklore conference near you um, because there are some regional folklore conferences there are smaller ones there's a western states folklore society for example has a conference uh, usually in april in on the Appropriately, obviously, on the Western states, <laughs> um, there's the New York Folklore Society. And, and I, I don't want to keep naming them because I know I'm going to forget people. Uh, Texas has one, for example. Um, also, there are folklore um, that are not societies, but they're the, the local regional there, So it's either local to your city or in your general region that I'm going to count, I'm going to call them councils, but I don't think that's out, um, always the case, but there's usually like a state folklorist or, uh, or there's often a state folklorist. Not every state has one, I don't believe. Um, but there, there are people in your state, if not in your city that you might be able to co- connect with, but reach out, uh, you, can, you can email um, the, uh, on, on the AFS website, uh, which is um, afsnet.org, uh, so it's afsnet.org. Um, you, there, I, I think there's a way to, to contact someone uh, from the, if not the board, from the, um, from the administrative part and letting them know your project and asking them if there's, if there's someone that they would could recommend who, who might be interested in talking to you about your project. Um, You can do the same thing on uh, uh, AFS has a, has a Facebook page that you can join. Obviously if you're on Facebook, Totally free. AFS has an Instagram page um, that I follow on, on the gram, and they have a Twitter page that I also follow. So it, it's a, uh, the, the resources are out there that all you need is just connect to one person who can then connect you to somebody else. So for example, if if you're doing a documentary in an area that might not be my field of my expertise, chances are I probably know at least one person who I can go, hey, that's not what I do. But I'm, I can still answer general questions about certain things. But let me connect you with this person who might be able to help you where it, it is their expertise. It is the thing that they do the most. Um, that's so key, and then from there, um, we can try to get you to a, a folklore conference, and that you can just be in the in the space with folklorists and meeting various folklorists and and hearing the work that they are doing and connecting. Um, I actually had the opportunity at at the last AFS conference. Um, in Baltimore where I, I met someone um, who didn't even know the work that he was doing was, was folklore. And he's not from Baltimore. He's, I think he was from Ohio. Um, and I was excited, a great opportunity um, also had a full-time job and some other things going, but, we encouraged him um, to reach out to us whenever he was ready to move forward and do more with that particular project, which was, which would easily end up being a multi-book project. Mm. And, but people are, people are busy. And, and since that was not the primary thing he was doing, um, I I don't know to the degree that he's reached out to anyone yet, but I remember who he is and I know someone who knows him. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure eventually I'm going to to reach out to him and just remind him because that's that's what we do. Also, we uplift each other's work and we want to be there as resources and mentors for other folklorists. That are up and coming.
0: So, would you say this is a, a unique space? And When I say unique, I mean for what it's worth, in any industry or, or any endeavor, we have these things. It's this 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 network base. But tapping back into your statement in regards of don't let anyone tell you. Those people aren't interesting enough to to cover. So we we have kind of a a unique space where the, the 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 folklorist is not looking for the popular or commercially viable story. They're looking for the story or specific story. So this do you consider this a unique space in that regard?
1: Um, I I'm not sure if it's unique. <laughs> Um, I, I think that there are writers who are looking for the slightly offbeat thing uh, that they might write about, so to speak. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not sure how unique it is. Is it, is it something that everyone is doing? Absolutely not. Um, is it special in, in a certain way? For me, yes. Yes. It, it is, um, but when I say don't, don't let people tell you that that thing is not, or, that, or those people are not um, worthy of your continued attention and engagement and study and writing about them or doing a documentary on them, that, that's also in recognition that, that, and as a reminder, that they're not alone in that space that other people have had similar situations where people have asked them, why are you studying that? What is that? Why is that important? And it's okay to say, I don't know why it's important right now, but this is why I think it's important. And you go from there. So is it, Is it unique that we see value in things that other people might tend to discount because the world is hectic and busy and people's lives are full of many, many different things? We are trained to see very specific things in very specific ways, to Mm. to see possibilities where some people won't even notice a thing. Well, in, in some ways, maybe,
0: yes. So to a degree. is unique in its own space, but not necessarily. Well, actually, <laughs> because this is a great segue to my question for you coming out of a literature background, right? And, and And correct me if I'm wrong, but a piece of your answer is based on your understanding of not just literature, but being a writer and looking for the story. Yes?
1: Um, I hadn't thought about it in that way actually I, I, I would say in some ways yes but a lot of it is is because of the story that when I think of story and when I talk about story I'm talking from a folklore's perspective not from a literature person's perspective so there is a difference for me there's a difference yes
0: please Elaborate on that because my question was actually: Does your background in literature help in direct your perception? But first, before you can answer that, you have to share with us your difference in the two.
1: Well, for me, so it 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 helps me when I dive into the analysis of an interview mm. because I am grounded in analysis that's i do that I, I do it almost like breathing it's practically a part of my dna at this point <laughs> but when i think about storytelling i'm i talk about storytelling in a very specific way and again that's also part of my training it has everything to do with to do with my professors it has everything to do with um where I went to school and, and my dissertation director, uh, who, who I count as a friend to this day, he and his wife both are wonderful people. I, I think about storytelling not from a strictly made up performance space. And by made up, I mean um, stories that are created sp- specifically to be performed. I think about storytelling as the thing that you share from yourself. Mm. And so when I'm talking storytelling, I'm talking personal narrative. I'm talking about the stories that um, people share about their lives and not just the personal narrative piece, but you know, this story that my grandmother told me kind of thing and how that can be created and made and presented in a way that it is a commentary on the black experience, as well as a commentary on the world. When I think about literature and there is folklore, as we uh, have already talked about in certain ways, for sure, there's folklore throughout literature, <laughs> throughout literature. <laughs> um, you know Ernest Day Gaines god rest his soul recently passed and he certainly incorporates aspects of folklore in his writing the uh, Ralph Ellison has a has a story absolutely fol- folklore in his writing so and i named those two but by no means are they the only two not by sure. any stretch of the imagination nation and there are and there are writers today that continue to do that so it's it's not something from you know, the 20th century or whatever. It it will continue to be a thing because folklore is life and people will continue to incorporate it uh, as they continue, as they try to make sense of the world. So the, the story of literature is the creation. It's just a different type of story for me. Uh, I'm I'm quite sure that people will, you know, disagree. There will be people who disagree and that's okay. That's part of, part of good, good conversations. But I, I, I see a literature space as simply a different form of storytelling and one that has value, absolutely has value in, in what it can do to illuminate the world, to highlight people's experiences. It's just different.
0: I dig it. Well, I'm I'm really honored that you took the time to sit down and and, and talk folklore and your story with us. Where can the people find you? is the time you can give us your Twitter handle, which I follow you by the way, and <laughs> and also your works, written works or any and everything that you're doing.
1: Well, I am um, on Twitter and Instagram, same handle, one, O-N-E, sun, S-U-N, girl, G-I-R-L. Same handle for both Twitter and Instagram. Again, I'm not on Facebook. Um, Who knows if I will ever be on Facebook, but I'm not there right now. Um, I'm... I have an article from probably three years ago, something like that. What year is this? <laughs> is that kind of thing? Oh, it's 2020. Okay. It's
0: early. We just got here.
1: I have an article that I did for um, a journal out of Canada that was attached to uh, Cape Breton University. It's a material cultural review, it's the title of the journal. And I. um, The the article is on Black history programs. And I actually talk about the Black storytellers of San Diego in that article. I have um, a couple of short. Pieces in a um, in a collection on the Black Arts Movement. Though those two are on Ernest J Gaines. One is the biographical piece, and the other is on Catherine Carmier, his first novel. Uh, I have um, a chapter coming out in 2021 in a book uh, entitled "Advancing Folkloristics." And um, where I talk about being the the lone folklorist in a non-folklore program, Mm. um, which is most folklorists are solo, most academic folklorists, which is what I am. And that simply means for your listeners, simply means that I'm a folklorist who teaches at a university as opposed to a folklorist who is doing uh, who works at a museum or who is doing other work in the public sector. And so I have that, that uh, chapter that's coming out of uh, the anticipated publication is sometime in 2021. I am um, I have a, a book that I am working on. It's a collection of essays that um, and it's, um, compiled from other um, non-folklores because this is a non-folklore project. I I, I straddle two intellectual homes. I have two intellectual homes. I inhabit them fully both and one is literature and one is folklore. So my scholarship will be and continue to be in both of those spaces. Um, The the manuscript that I'm working on for the University Press of Mississippi, uh, that is actually due s- this summer, <laughs> very yes. early summer, um, is is a collection um, of seven, I think, um, essays by other scholars on Ernest J. Gaines for the 21st century. Mm.
0: So, we have two (laughs) interviews in the future that we have to do one for that chapter and one for this book.
1: (laughs) I I welcome the opportunity. So, that, and, and I, of course, have another. I have another uh, solo Gaines book rattling around in my head that I haven't been able to get to yet, uh, but I will get to it. Um, his work, and I know this is a folklore thing and not on literature.
0: Uh, well, literature is very important to for me, and that's something else. See, see, you're not on Facebook, and I wonder if that's because of conspiracy theories. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not because of
1: conspiracy theories. I, I I just I have issues with.
0: Uh, privacy stuff. In ah, understood. <laughs> but if you ever decide to go on Facebook, or you can see on my website, but uh, my, my Jack Dapper Blues Facebook group actually has the entire list. I have a post that is uh, pinned, which is a list of African American uh, black literature that people should read. And so many people, you know, I, I started adding, but, you know, so many people have chimed in with different books so the the purpose of me sharing this with you is because i I believe whether it has to do with folklore or not literature reading is is primary
1: (laughs) it is it is it brings knowledge it brings understanding it it just brings fun too a well-written book not, it's hard to beat sometimes regardless of how you read it. You know, I, I I still like, I still like a regular book in my hand. I (laughs) I just, I enjoy that, but certainly I've read stuff online. So however you read, just, just read, just do it, find something, someone that you like and just read their work and, and, and be excited about it. That's a great thing. So I, so I'm because I'm not on your, uh, I'm, I don't follow you on Facebook um, because I'm not there. Do you have uh, Zora Noherson's latest novel that they found and published recently? And then Ernest J. Gaines' latest novel. Do you have those two on there?
0: If not, I will email you those titles. Email them to me, please, and they're I going will. up immediately. I will. I will
1: email both of those to you. Um, uh, Gaines' work was just published uh, very, very recently. And, um, the one by Hurston was, I think, 2018. I think that one was published then.
0: Um,
1: so yeah, I will, I will get those, I'll get those
0: titles to you. Please do. And
1: I, I have enjoyed it. Thank you for, um, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, it's, it's been fun.
0: It has, and you have a, a great NPR voice. Oh, thank you,
1: <laughs> NPR. Did you hear this? I love NPR. <laughs> NPR. Did you hear? I would love to do something for you.
0: <laughs> you, you hear what I'm saying. Oh, wait! Before we go, tell them sure. your involvement in the American Folklore Society.
1: Um, what what do I do for them? You mean? Yes, <laughs> I, yes, yes. I I show up at the conferences and I love. I mean, I I I love folklore in ways that I cannot even begin to express, honestly, and and that's saying something for somebody who talks a lot. But <laughs> I folklore is and and the folklore society, the American Folklore Society itself, is such an incredibly welcoming space we are certainly working on some uh the strategic plan we are moving forward with goals for uh, the next five years we welcome new uh, voices we welcome new people we welcome you if you are in any way interested in Um, the American Folklore Society, becoming a part of it, just seeing who the heck we are. You feel free to contact me. And um, I am just rolling off of the board. I was a a board member for the last three years. And uh, 2019 was my last year on the board. I have, I'm staying on as Uh, The the three members who rolled off uh, of the board in 2019 have been asked to continue um, uh, assisting with the finalization of the strategic plan, which uh, we we have all agreed to do uh, throughout 2020. But know that I am committed to the American Folklore Society. Uh, I'm committed to its growth. I'm committed to its growing diversity. Uh, or else I would never have been on the board. I, you, You give your time and your heart to the things that you love. And I love that society and it matters to me that it continues to be strong. And so I encourage your listeners who might even think that they might be interested in folklore or who wonder if the thing that they're doing, is in any way folklore related i encourage them to reach out reach you can reach out to me um uh, on twitter or instagram or um if you uh, you can contact amon at his email address or Absolutely. his contact information um we we know people who know people who know people so know that we welcome your presence at the, at the Folklore Society, we, we welcome your presence in this field, in this discipline, and we will be made stronger because you are
0: there. You heard it here. <laughs> All right. And I agree, by Thank the way, you. but uh, you heard it here. Okay. So folks, look out for that chapter and the book. Go back and read the old excerpts and chapters and happy folklorism.
1: Happy Folklorists. Folklorists are some of the best people in the world. Don't ever doubt it.
0: Jack Dapper Blue's Heritage Preservation Foundation is a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit private foundation. Your donations, sponsoring, and funding allows us to create content that raises awareness of African-American traditional music, African-American folklore, and the Black experience. Check the Link in the description box to donate if you wish to sponsor podcasts documentary series or underwrite ads in our upcoming newspaper the african-american folklorist launching february 5th 2020 contact the email address in the description box